Well, in case you don't know me, my name is John Nesbitt, and as Trent mentioned last week, I'm retiring as executive pastor at the end of August, and you've probably noticed I don't preach very often. The last time was February 2014, and the time before that was 2011. So I'm just curious, by a show of hands, how many of you have started coming to West Shore after February 2014? Awesome. It is so nice to meet you. <laughs> and I must say, this is an exciting time to be a part of West Shore. As you might imagine, I've been thinking about this message a lot. Of all the things I could say, what would be the most helpful? What would God want me to say? For a moment, put yourself in my place. What do you think you would say? Well, the scriptures have a rich history of parting words. So for inspiration, I looked at the last words of Moses and David, and my favorite was Paul's very emotional parting with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Now, I'm not dying, as far as I know, and Terry and I aren't leaving. I'm just retiring from my position. But I do believe I have a perspective worth sharing. And those biblical examples I looked at have given me a great pattern to follow. And it's this, encouragement, warning, and key things to remember. So I'll be sharing with you this morning three words of affirmation, two words of challenge, and one final word. I also want you to know that this message is not about me, and it's not about my retirement. It's about us. It's about our body. Much more importantly, it's about God and what will bring Him glory. So for me, it boils down to, what would God have me to say to you, my family, that I love? So let me begin with three words of affirmation. These are what I see when I look at you. They represent who you are to me. And I want you to know in each of these areas, you inspire me to be better than I am. And the first thing I want to say is you are resilient. Resilient. Now, the definition of that is tending to recover from or adjust well to misfortune or change. People who are resilient take a licking and keep on ticking. The older people got that one. <clears throat> There's two great biblical words that are related to this, endurance and perseverance. Many of you have embraced the words of Paul who wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. We should have the words on the screen coming up soon. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And James said this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. 
Now, I see evidence of this resilience throughout our body. There are many of you who have been ill or injured, and some of whom have no clear diagnosis and no remedy. Some of you face terminal disease, while others experience chronic pain, and there is no relief no matter what is tried. And sometimes when there is a possible solution, it's way too expensive, and the insurance companies are fighting you every step of the way. There are many of you this morning in those kinds of situations. To name just two, Jennifer Ritter and Tammy Desmaris. They have been struggling with spinal fluid leaks for four and six years, respectively. Jennifer's were caused by a car accident that was not her fault. And Tammy's pain has been compounded by Lyme's disease that was contracted on a mission trip. Among many complex symptoms, their headaches are unending and painfully debilitating, sapping their energy. And in situations like that, one can't help but ask, why me? I am inspired by Jennifer and Tammy, as well as many others of you, because you don't allow your awful experience to push you away from Jesus. But you press into him, and you wait, and you continue to pray. Others of you are just worn out from ministry, the ministry of providing for your family, of being a mom, of being a foster or adoptive parent, of caring for aging parents. There is one group that I would like to single out this morning. I would like to ask those who are 70 years old and older, would you please stand right now if you're able to do that? 70 years old and older, stand up. You, yes. Don't sit down, don't sit down yet. Keep standing. You have all seen a lot of change, and you have endured a lot in your lives, yet you still worship God. We have much to learn from your wisdom and your example. Thank you for being a part of our body, for the richness you bring to us. Let's honor them again. You may be seated, thank you. Now I believe that we as a body are resilient because we have hope in the character of God and assurance in his sovereign plan for our lives even when it doesn't make sense at this point. So let us encourage one another in our resilience when the hard times come, and they will. Secondly, you are generous. You're generous. You have manifested the spirit of 2 Corinthians 9. The point is this, Paul writes, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency... In all things, at all times, you may abound 
in every good work. This year, for the first time in memory, actual budgeted income has exceeded our budget goal by almost $127,000. Our total surplus for the fiscal year, that's income minus expenses, was over $250,000. That is hugely helpful, and it gives us the opportunity to do some very beneficial things. But it's not just the general fund that displays your generosity. In 2010, we had the idea of a designated offering on Christmas Eve, but we wrestled with it because that's typically our biggest giving month of the year. If we invite folks to give to a cause outside the church, will that take away from needed giving for our general fund? I am so glad we took the faith step and decided this special offering was the right thing to do. So that first year, former youth pastor Tony Hunt gave an impassioned plea for the Aurora Primary School in South Africa. And you gave over $168,000. And in all the years since, the Christmas Eve offering has never kept us from finishing in the black at year end. And we have raised over $700,000 for projects around the world. But what about facilities? Capital campaign experts will tell you that people give for people and new ministries and even new sanctuaries and classrooms. But basic improvement projects, nah, they're boring. They're uninspiring. In the spring of 2009, we had a special offering for a sewer pump station. <laughs> and the need was almost $300,000. You can't get much more glamorous than that. <laughs> so at the end of a fiscal year, you gave beyond what was needed for the project, and we still finished that year in the black. In early 2014, after Pastor Phil Thorne had left, and we were still searching for a new senior pastor, which is not great timing for a campaign, we were in dire need of a maintenance building, paving the parking lot, and a second exit. Now, four years later, we are enjoying all three, which are fully paid for. And you know, it's, it's not just finances. You are generous with your time in serving. Every week, hundreds of you are serving in awesome adventure, student ministries, ushers and greeters, life group leaders, fellowship groups, Alpha, and many more ministries. In addition, throughout the week, you serve one another in countless ways as you bear one another's burdens. Here's the point. You have demonstrated time and again that when a genuine need is presented, you always respond with consistent overflowing generosity. Thank you. So you're resilient, and you are generous, and you are followers. You're followers. Now, being a follower is a noble thing. Jesus loves followers. In fact, it is Jesus who invites us to come, deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. There's a great biblical word for followers, disciple. 
great leaders need great followers. And the Lord has gifted our body with both. You know, in my own life, I have never aspired to be the leader, but what I have sought is to be able to serve a good leader, a person who would share similar values as I have and who served a mission worth pursuing and sacrificing for. And I believe that's what you have sought for also. And God has blessed this body with gifted shepherds who have followed God and led us well. I was immensely proud of our body during the transition time between Pastor Philthorne leaving and Pastor Trent coming. It was the fall of 2013. We conducted an online survey that got 638 responses, which is good, and around 50 focus groups. And the point was to collectively assess who we are as a body as well as what we aspire to become. And the results were amazingly consistent across the board. Here's what you collectively said. First, we deeply value bold biblical preaching as well as visionary leadership. Secondly, we are grateful for this resource God has provided, this building, our grounds, and we want to use them wisely in growing ministry. But third, our most desired growth area was that we want to reach out and engage our local community more. And we want a senior pastor that will help show the way forward in that important task. I am as excited about the ministry of our body as I have ever been. Why? Because I am convinced that in Pastor Trent, God provided us exactly what we were looking for and what we needed. Amen? And I also believe that we are right on the verge of tremendous impact in our community through city initiatives. No pressure, Ryan Keith, wherever you may be. You will be hearing much more about this in the year ahead. This is our mission. It is our great privilege, and we all will have a part to play in it. Now, I'd like to honor a second group this morning. I'd like to honor those who have gone before us and laid the foundation on which we stand. So at this time, I would like to ask to stand all those who have ever served on our church staff. Would you please stand, all employees at any time, as well as all those who have ever served as elders. Would you please stand? Stand up. I see you there. Let's thank them now for the good leaders they have been. It has been one of the great joys in my life to serve with you leaders in this ministry, as well as all the other inspiring servants in our church body. You are resilient and you are generous and you are great followers. Well done. Now I want to shift gears a little bit and give you two words of challenge. 
as we look forward to our mission, we need to be aware that we're in a battle with eternal consequences, and we must prepare ourselves, and we must be on guard because of it. Several weeks ago, Trent shared with us eight things a church can do for the gospel in our culture. These are things we need to be doing to be effective for Christ today. So I'm going to be reflecting back on some of those. But before I share the two words, I want to say this. In order to have a positive, noticeable impact in the world for Christ, we need to be distinctive. Distinctive. Not weird, but winsome. We need to live distinctively like Jesus. We are to be more like Jesus than the world. And unfortunately, some of us live too much like the world. There's a great biblical term for this, holy, which means to be set apart. We need to hate sin and yearn to live godly lives. Now, some Christians are more notably distinct, but their difference is more offensive than winsomely attractive. Think of Jesus. He was irritating and offensive to the religious elite for whom Jesus was a threat to their power and position. But to sinners, he was compellingly attractive. So there's two ways in particular where I'm confident we can be more positively distinctive. And if we are, we will stand out as bright lights in a dark world. And the first way is love. Love. Love one another. As Trent put it, have deep relationships with one another. Jesus said, just as I have loved you, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And amazingly, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, how do we love one another better? By doing the hard work of resolving conflicts and restoring relationship instead of hiding and pretending there's no problem. By asking more questions in an effort to understand instead of pronouncing judgment. By genuinely forgiving those who have hurt and wronged us. The world notices when these things are done because they are distinctive. But you know what? Loving people in the body is actually the easiest group Jesus called us to love. He also asked us to love our neighbor. As Trent put it, we need to be great neighbors. In, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus answers the question, who is my neighbor? But strangely to me, the person Jesus chose to show us our neighbor is not the person who lives next door that we know. Rather, it's the neighbor we don't know. It's whomever God puts across my path that I can help. But this is not the hardest person to love either. Incredibly, God asks us to love our enemy. Now let me ask you, who is 
the real enemy. Satan, yeah. The rest are blind captives, which we once were. Jesus commands us to love our enemy just as I have loved you. So, how did Jesus love us? Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me ask you, how does the world see us? Sadly, the world condemns us as narrow-minded, judgmental, and offensive. Now, some of that is the deception of Satan. Some of it's because sinners prefer darkness to light. But too much of it is regrettably true. We want to be like Jesus in the way that he loves, but too often we just act like the world. So here's what I want you to think about this morning. When we are in a relationship with a non-believer, whether they're in our family or a co-worker or the neighbor across the street, what is the single most important thing that they need? What is the most important thing that they need? It's not our position on the latest political hot-button issue. It's not even what we think of their lifestyle and sinful choices. The most important thing they need is who we know and that He saved us and that He loves them just as much as He loves us. Let's give them Jesus. Once they are saved, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit will deal with their sin just like He does with us. So the second area that I think we can be more positively distinctive is sexual purity. As Trent put it, we need to embrace biblical sexuality. Paul calls us to sexual purity in many places in the Bible, including Titus 2, where he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Peter put it this way, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. It's no surprise that we live in a sex-saturated culture. And we're not the first culture to be this way. But far too often, the sexual behaviors and beliefs of many Christians cannot be distinguished from the world's views. Of deepest concern to me is the epidemic of pornography. Of men who claim to be Christians, 68% look at pornography regularly. That's seven out of 10 men. 32% of men ages 18 to 30 admit to having an addiction to porn. These numbers are shocking to me 
And let's be clear, the problem is not limited to young men. And it's not just men. You know, I just don't want to believe it's that pervasive in our church. But I think we would be terribly naive to think that the numbers aren't significant even here. So now, I want to speak directly to those of you who are looking at things you know in your heart of hearts are not right. And some of you have gone beyond looking. And please know, I am saving, saying this because of my grave concern for the health of your soul. You have rationalized that it isn't hurting anyone, and that is a lie of Satan. It hurts the people you are looking at, and it's hurting you, and it's hurting those whom you love. You may not see it now, but a day of reckoning is coming. Deep in your heart, I hope you are feeling some measure of guilt. It's the voice of the Holy Spirit telling you to stop for your sake, for your family's sake, for God's sake. Stop. Our Lord Jesus began his earthly ministry with these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. For all who are in bondage to sin of any kind, the great good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to liberate us, to set us free. We are no longer slaves to sin. Brothers and sisters, if you are still living as a slave to sin, refuse to give in to it any longer. Strive to live a regret-free life. James tells us, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. No matter how compelling or attractive it seemed at the time, every time I have done something I knew to be wrong, I came to regret it. On the other hand, no matter how hard it was at the time to do the right thing, I have always been glad when I did that. So if your heart is tender and if you're ready to make a change, what's the next step? You need to bring your stuff into the light. You need to confess it to God and share it with others. Why is that so hard? Ever since the Garden of Eden, we have been ashamed of our sin, and we've tried to hide from God. But our only hope is that we bring it into the light of His grace and the love and support of His people. If you're struggling in this area, I invite you to be in touch with me. We don't want to shame you. We want to help you, and we will be discreet. I hope the response is overwhelming. We will do our best to serve and to help as many as we can.
I would like to thank you for receiving that hard word this morning. I do have one final word. Of all that I have said this morning, what I am about to say is the most important. This is the one thing I especially want you to remember. Trust. Trust. To expand on that, God is faithful and good. So let's keep on trusting Him. Psalm 100, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. Now, I can imagine you saying, John, that's so simple. I knew that already. It's, it's almost trite. It is simple. The problem is it's so hard to do. This has been the message of Isaiah throughout our 11-month study. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to believe and do it when a huge and vicious army is right outside your city. If we will practice trust, our lives will be transformed and nothing will ever overcome us because nothing can overcome the God in whom we trust. Here is my testimony to you this morning from Psalm 37. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. You know, I first came across these words many years ago, and I wondered about them even then. I wondered, when I'm old, will I be able to say that? I also wondered about his children begging for bread. You know, we know there's many places in the world where Christians are dying from hunger. So what can that mean? And now, I am old, relatively. As was David when he wrote this. And it occurs to me that David might have been referring to a more important bread, the bread of life, for which we never have to beg. It's free for the taking. It costs us nothing because it costs Jesus everything. To restate this in a slightly different way, all I have seen teaches me to trust God in all I have not seen. Let me say it again. All I have seen teaches me to trust God in all I have not seen. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever leaders wanted to encourage greater trust in God, they simply reminded the people of how God had worked in the past, how time after time He had been faithful and good. And this is a great thing for us to do as well. How has God been faithful and good to you personally? He certainly has been faithful and good to me. Some of you know a bit of my story. I grew up in Newport News, Virginia. My dad was a doctor. And because of the stresses, he became an alcoholic. And my mother did as well. So I became a mess in my teenage years. But as a freshman in college, God took my heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh, I became a Christian and began my journey of trusting Him. It was in college that I felt the Lord leading me to go to seminary. I'm not sure what I was thinking. I wasn't sure what I would do in a church, 
But the one thing I knew I didn't want to do was preach. <laughs> God does have a sense of humor. To be honest, I have never felt like a pastor. I have a very high view of pastors, great respect. I just never felt worthy of that honor. But God is faithful and good. One day I came across this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now that sounds like me. I can do that. And Paul goes on to describe what seems like he could be talking about my ministry. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, at the risk of being fired, <laughs> you notice how long I waited. <laughs> Let me tell you who I really am. I am anxiety-prone, performance-oriented, and a perfectionist. That means I worry about things in the future that will likely never happen that I can't control anyway. And I work too long and too hard so that you will be pleased and like me for what I do because I don't believe you could ever like me for who I am. And I can never even please myself because my own expectations for myself are impossibly high. In short, I am still a mess but I am less messy than I used to be. <laughs> Why? Because God loves me. He knows me inside and out because He made me carefully, intentionally, like a master craftsman to fulfill a purpose for Him that would bring Him glory even and sometimes especially because of my weakness. And God has been faithful and good to you because He loves you. And God has been faithful and good to our church family because He loves us. So let's keep on trusting Him. In closing, I'd like...
I'd like to share how I really feel about you. I love you. You have put up with me. You have loved me for who I am. You have inspired me. How could I not love you? Serving you has been the highlight of all my years of ministry. I believe that all my training and all my experiences were used by God to prepare me for the privilege of serving you. I am grateful beyond words to you and to the God who brought me here. Let's pray. Lord, you know, you know my heart is full of gratitude today for this body. And we are grateful to you for who you are, faithful and good. Lord, please help our first reaction in any tough situation to be to trust and depend on you. Help us to love better. Help us to live in holiness and purity so that the world might see you in how we live. Bless your body today and in the year ahead. Lead us into your fullness and empower us by your spirit to serve you well. You love us so much. May we know and live in that great truth. Amen.